Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I am joined by producer Andrew in his uh, mixed role as guest and producer <laughs> and voice on the podcast to discuss the novel Starship Troopers. Welcome, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And this is a request from patron Grant, and uh, he said he wanted us to talk about Starship Troopers. He settled on talking about the novel, uh, but we're definitely going to touch a little bit on the film and its relationship to the novel. Um, I haven't seen the film. Have you ever seen the film, Andrew? I've seen chunks on it. It was one of those things that was on TNT on the weekends or or something like that. You know, so, you know, clicking through and seeing like, hey, you know, space military. Okay. Yes. And I'll, I'll watch some of that. Is, is a huge part of the legacy of Starship Troopers. So that is what stands out. Um, Starship Troopers, for anyone who's unfamiliar, it is a science fiction novel by Robert Heinlein. It was originally published in two parts in the magazine Fantasy and Science Fiction and then put together as a novel that was published in 1959. And from what I saw, I think those two parts were also published in 1959. Um, at the earliest, it would have been maybe 1958 for the first part. But I couldn't I couldn't actually find a definitive listing of which issues and year the magazine uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction had published those first two parts. But almost universally it's listed it was, as a 1959 novel you know it was the it was the wild west of science fiction magazines in the late 50s <laughs> well not quite as crazy as the 30s um that, that was the real <laughs> real uh, insanity at that point um but starship troopers is set in the future and it tells the story of juan rico 
who is often called Johnny Rico uh, in the text, who joins the military and fights insect-like alien invaders while having a lot of um, abstract theoretical discussions about the best systems of government, the highest moral choices regarding service and self-sacrifice, and also some debates about militarism and violence uh, in there as well. Now, Joseph, you called them insect invaders. I don't know if that's a hundred percent accurate. What's well, it? Insect-like? I, well, no, I mean, I mean, invaders. All the invaders. Well, they do yeah. bomb Earth at one point. Um, yes, but I don't know and- if that was an invasion unprovoked. Yes, and that is one part of the story. Is we're seeing this, uh, this large-scale military conflict from the point of view of the grunt, right? The yeah, the feet a, a on the single, ground. a single soldier. Yes, and so, uh, and, and the war really kicks off when he is in training and not getting constant updates about what is happening out there. And the the yeah. presentation that we see from his point of view is that the aliens were the aggressors, um, but the reality of that is left a little bit murky. Yeah, the, the what I felt was the authentic interpretation was the aliens had been aggressors towards another race that the humans became allies to. Yeah, and the, that race is not I mean, we I don't think what we, do they call them skinnies, the skinnies. Yeah. And this other race is not dealt with in depth uh, in the in this story. And yeah, so we'll, we'll get into some of that stuff. Yeah. Um. And it is an interesting text. Ah, I mean, this is some of the discussion we have. This is not really a character-driven story, and it's not really a plot-driven story, which when you talk about science fiction war stories, you think this is all going to be plot and action. This is very much an idea-driven story, and um, you know, it, it's a thematic story more so yeah, it's, than character It's or an old-school science fiction. What was that? It's it's more old school science fiction, kind of your Isaac Asimov. This is a think piece, but we need to give it some sort of context to explore these ideas. Well, since you mentioned Isaac Asimov, uh, why don't we go ahead and jump into the trivia? Because his name is going to come up. <laughs> um, Heinlein <laughs> is one of the big names in science fiction. And Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and Arthur C. Clarke are considered the big three of sci-fi, at least English language sci-fi. Like we, we obviously have a bias there in, a, in America. Um, uh, but those are the names that are, are recognized as kind of the foundational three for what uh, the early versions of sci-fi were and what science fiction has become. It's standing on the foundation of Heinlein, Asimov, and Clark. Um, and Heinlein is often called the dean of science fiction writers. Like that's kind of a label that he picked up at some point in the fan community, and it stuck. And specifically, Heinlein um, is said to have helped foster the subgenre of hard sci-fi. So when we talk about science fiction, there is hard sci-fi, which is rooted in scientific principles as we understand them now, and technology as we understand it now, and extrapolating into the future uh, with with those principles. Um, versus um, soft sci-fi, which could be you know have some hand wavy technology, like oh we have faster than light travel. And we're not going to talk about how or why. We just do. You know, that that kind of hand wave is sometimes called soft sci-fi. With hard sci-fi, you would get, you know, uh, the engineer talking in depth as to how this ship can travel exactly as fast as it is traveling um, in the story. And it would be rooted in the principles of science as uh, as we know them now, uh, you know, at the time of the writing. And then there's even other genres, uh, you know, sub subsets of science fiction. So uh, like something like Star Wars is called a space opera. And that's blending fantasy elements like the force with science fiction elements like outer space and, you know, spaceships and, and all these other things. 
Um, Starship Troopers is considered one of the earliest, if not the earliest, future futuristic military mecha soldier story. So where we're telling sci-fi stories and we're, uh, it's going to be war-based and the soldiers are going to be wearing these giant suits um, that are going to have technology uh, that, you know, make them almost superhuman. Uh, like, okay, the the most popular version of this right now is Iron Man, right? The, the, the kind of the mm-hmm. touchstone for, for that idea. And Starship Troopers is considered one of the first of that, where like the soldiers are completely encased in the, in this armor that gives them almost superhuman powers. Um, but it's, it's rooted in that technology. And um, many of Heinlein's stories were published under the editor, John W. Campbell. If you ever study science fiction, that is a huge name. In science fiction, I remember taking a science fiction literature class in college, and we had to talk about John W. Campbell. He helped um, at, with his role as an editor and also um, a writer because he would publish some of his own work in science fiction magazines that he was an editor of. He definitely helped shape the tone and style of American science fiction, um, perhaps even more than those big three writers um, in in terms of what uh, expectations uh, for the genre are, like codifying the generic elements of science fiction. Campbell is a huge voice in that um he edited um a science fiction magazine that was called astounding science fiction and later on it changed its name i can't remember what it changed its name to off the top of my head but he published or edited that from 1937 until he died in 1971 and this is where um a lot of the big names of science fiction uh first found an audience was in that um that magazine it is worth noting however (laughs) that campbell's ideas haven't aged well, particularly as the civil rights movement came about. That's when people started to really see, hmm, you know, some of the themes in his works might not hold up well. And Heinlein, Asimov, and Clark, who all had worked with him, they all distanced themselves from him and and never worked with him. I think from 1950 on, they never worked with him again um, as uh, some of his political views um, were, uh, he voiced them more and they diverged from a lot of the sentiment that people looking towards a positive future <laughs> didn't necessarily agree with. Um, and uh, talking about Heinlein again, he has the record for the most Hugo Awards, which um, is, again, kind of like, I know we've mentioned them in the past. It's uh, the big award for science fiction and fantasy is the, is the Hugo Awards. And he has the record having won four. And then also um, the Hugos give out what are called retro Hugos uh, for works that were published before hugo awards started to be given out I've, I've tried to get a handle on how exactly these retro hugos worked it looks like um periodically uh it is things that were published 50 years ago like from the year they're giving out the retro hugo mm. anything that was in that year if the hugo awards had existed what would we give it to and he also has won a couple retro hugo awards as well i've seen some people argue that like for the oscars each year's Oscar should actually be looking back five years. Like five years ago, what was the best film? Because sometimes we get it wrong <laughs> when we're giving the award <laughs> out the same year. Like what really back, matters? You look back in hindsight and say, that film didn't actually have any impact. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but in the moment, it felt like this was the big artsy film that everyone's going to be talking about for years. And then with a little bit of hindsight, even just five years worth, we start to say, oh, you know what the biggest film was that year? It wasn't Traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Last bit of trivia that I want to touch on is that film that we kind of mentioned, which I think is probably uh, for most people the um, like the touchstone for Starship Troopers. Yeah, that's, for the, that's name, the name recognition. Yeah, it is that film, um, and that is a 1997 film uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven. 
Uh, and let's just say that the relationship that fans of Heinlein's novel have with that film is complex. Uh, well, and even <laughs> people's relationship with the novel in general is is complex. Um, I guess this is getting into some of what we'll talk about, but the novel is sometimes accused of being um, a fascist novel, um, which when I listened to it, I'd, I'd heard that before. And I thought this doesn't, it's definitely militaristic, like the undeniably militaristic and praising yeah. the role of military. Fasc, fascist, I wasn't seeing quite as much, though I understand if that's what you're looking for, where you could you could find it. But it didn't seem as strong a theme as just militaristic. Um, mm-hmm. And I knew people, uh, the film had a different message. And looking into it, um, Paul Verhoeven was actually working on a sci-fi film in which the military, this futuristic military, was going to be fighting an insect-like race. Uh, and then at some point, the studio said, we have the rights to this story called Starship Troopers. Would you like to call it that? <laughs> and and do an adaptation. And kind of like the story he had melded with the story in the novel, but definitely very and different. And got kind of a, a, like some character name overlay and maybe a little bit of character backstory. Yes, but, but not... It, but not it's, really a lot of the spirit of it. Yes. And in fact, Verhoeven very much considers this a satire of the fascist elements of the novel. Um, and so when I was looking into some of the trivia, I came across an article that said, uh, well, it was, it was debating, is the novel fascist? Uh, and they say that, that article came down as no. And it turns out there's a lot of debate on that. Uh, we're not going to solve it on this podcast. Yeah, I don't think we're really going to dig that much into it. <laughs> there's a a lot of debate, both from fans and also scholars, like academics who do uh, talk about science fiction. This novel has academics yelling at each other <laughs> um, back and forth on, on what some of the themes are uh, within the novel. And in that article that I was looking at, though, it said it mentioned the film and it said there is debate as to whether the film is an abomination that ruins the original novel it, or if it is a very smart subversive satire of the themes of the original novel or is it both <laughs> like that is <laughs> you know well uh, i'm going to i'm going to say having seen chunks of the film i wouldn't call it extremely smart and subversive yeah well i those, mean those are not terms i would apply to it yeah and i have not seen the film so i i don't have an opinion on that i was just saying mm-hmm. uh, like the the fans of the it's a mess. <laughs> if you're a fan of the film, a fan of the novel, a fan of both, what is the relationship between all those? It seems to be a bit muddy, uh, just from my lo- looking into it for for this discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on and talk about the novel in more depth, uh, we want to thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode and listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon, like Patron Grant, who chose this topic for us this week. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, uh, talk about TV shows or books um, that, that we've been consuming recently. And we also give a monthly update on our fantasy box office. At the moment, Andrew is doing fine <laughs> in the fantasy box office. I am really looking forward to Avengers Endgame coming out. All patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now the full spoiler discussion about Starship Troopers. 
The novel opens with Juan Rico engaged in space-age warfare. He's wearing a giant robotic suit, and he's trying to do minimal damage to civilians and the city on an alien planet, while still clearly establishing the dominance of Earth's military force. We then jump back in time to when Rico is a high school student. We see the first of many philosophical debates about the merits of different forms of government and the value of different citizens from a moral philosophy teacher. And now uh, Juan Rico's father is a rich and successful businessman, and he has lined up a cushy position for his son after he graduates from school. But almost on a whim, uh, not entirely, but but definitely relatedly to a girl from high school joining, enlisting into the military as a pilot, Juan Rico decides to enlist in the military too. <laughs> and um, it turns out in this society, which again is... Uh, in the future at some point, the only way to become a full citizen with voting rights is to engage in public service. And I guess from what we see in the novel, it's almost exclusively through military service. Uh, because of some of the accusations that this was uh, fascist, it, it seems like in some later interviews that Heinlein said, oh no, there are lots of ways that they could become full citizens, uh, uh, serving in science or in other ways, serve, serving uh, you know, the government in other ways would also make you a full citizen. But in the novel, and, and this is where some like scholars said, there's nothing in the novel that implies that. In the novel, it seems almost exclusively military service is how someone can become a citizen with voting rights in this, uh, in this world. Now, yeah, and um, part of that seems, I mean, in essence, that seems more or less like the the what French Foreign Legion, um, you can serve for a time and become a French citizen. Yes, because uh, this this is for international um, citizens to become citizens of whatever government it is. It's not super clear, but there's a, definitely a, a very international, broad, diverse cast that come in through the military. Yes, um, and I. Uh... I mean, I see what you're saying with like seeming like the French Foreign Legion, where anyone can become a French citizen by doing that. But this is to be a citizen of Earth and have voting rights for an Earth-wide government. It's not like you still have local rights. Yeah, uh, which which I did not immediately grasp. You know, they they talk about the government, and it's like, is that is there just like a ruling country, and there are natural-born citizens, which they clear up later on that no, <laughs> yeah, there are no fully natural-born citizens, but it is also. From a, an international um, environment yeah, like, um, that you're drawing all of these military participants. And Rico and his family, they're in Argentina. Is that right? Uh, I mean, it mentions. I think so. Buenos Aires specifically, but never like yeah. labels um, where everyone's from. You just kind of pick up some context clues as you go around. Yeah. Uh, so enlisting in the military estranges Rico from his parents. His father doesn't see the honor in military service. His mom doesn't want him to die. <laughs> um, and, and so there's a strain there. But even though the system expects and allows a certain number of enlistees to drop out and actually to have very minimal like black marks on their record, if they drop out at a certain point, it's kind of like, here's your get-out-of-jail-free kid <laughs> card, kid. You can drop out now, mm -hmm. and uh, you'll be fine. Uh, Rico is determined to see it through. Um, and so then we get into a, a very long portion of the novel is his training. Um, it's very hard physically. It, it's physically taxing. It's mentally draining. It's, it's emotionally exhausting. Uh, and um, they're being kind of beaten down and made into the exacting, completely obedient soldiers that the military needs right, at this point. Uh, and in the course of this, 
we see some things like another recruit is flogged and dishonorably discharged because he hits his instructor. And this is one moment where um, the, I feel like kind of like kind of manipulates Rico into being in some rooms that he probably wouldn't be <laughs> in order to see, <laughs> to see this mm-hmm. all carry out because the, the, the story is exclusively from Rico's point of view. Uh, and, um, and so we see uh, in this story, the enlistee, who is in trouble because he hits his um, his supervising, uh, you know, uh, member officer uh, officer. They get taken into the next higher up above his supervisor. Right. And his supervisor actually doesn't say he hit me. He just says this guy needs some discipline. Uh, But the supervisor has a black eye. Yeah. The supervisor has a black eye and the his and you know, the higher up clearly knows what happened. But they don't want to have to flog and dishonorably discharge this guy. They just want him to be punished <laughs> and then carry on. But he is like so angry and feels so like the system is against him that he just loudly yells about how he hit his he's, surprising he's, officer. He's also demonstrated as like kind of dumb. Oh, yeah. Like he does not get that they are trying to give him an out. Yes. And once he says to his supervisor, supervisor that I hit that guy, he's like, well, I have no choice. You're getting flogged and you're going to be dishonorably discharged and being dishonorably discharged is a black mark that you can come back from. But again, the system like is almost like they seem to be bending over at times to say, please take this out and it won't be dishonorable. Uh, But once he says I hit my supervising officer, they have to flog him and dishonorably discharge him. And after seeing this, Rico's kind of at an emotionally low point, but he receives a letter from his high school instructor in moral philosophy. And this is where we got some of those first debates uh, that this novel is definitely engaging with uh, explicitly in terms of we're going to talk about this, but also through Rico's life. We're going to be engaging with some of these ideas and these themes. And that instructor reveals that he was part of the mobile infantry. That's the group that is in these mech, mech suits and that he hopes to see Juan succeed. Knowing that his instructor is keeping an eye on his progress helps Rico to stay committed. He, like he was kind of considering like, can I get out of this? Uh, you know, because it's so hard and difficult. And I've seen some things that I don't like. Uh, but knowing that. Yeah, like, like any point through training, they can just drop out. Yeah. You know, but knowing that this man that he respects, his his instructor, is very specifically keeping an eye on him. It makes him stay committed. And eventually, after training in other areas of combat, uh, Juan, Rico, and his fellow enlistees, fewer than who started, but the ones who have made it, they graduate. And as we noted earlier on, there are references to, to two alien group alien groups while, while Rico's in training, the skinnies and the bugs. Um, and the humans at this point, when he comes out of it, are in an all-out war with the bugs. And they, the, uh, Buenos Aires is attacked, and Rico's mom dies in that attack. Uh, the humans then counter by attacking the bugs home world in a battle that is a bit of a disaster <laughs> for the military. It doesn't go well. Uh, they may have overreached on this one. Rico's ship is destroyed as is most of his unit. Uh, he survives though, and he gets transferred to another unit and kind of through attrition <laughs> as the war is progressing, he gets promoted up to a corporal. And after several suggestions from his higher ups, most of which Rico misses, he enrolls in officer candidate stool. Like people keep <laughs> saying to him, you've got the stuff kid. And he's going, eh, I'm just a grunt. And they're like, no, Wait. you've got the stuff kid. <laughs> oh, you, you, you really should consider enrolling. <laughs> yeah. You really took over there when we needed a leader. Yeah. I'm a grunt. I just do what I'm supposed to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and finally he enrolls and he gets transferred off of the ship. And 
as he is transferring off of the ship, he actually sees his father coming onto the ship. His father has enlisted and they reconcile. and They actually have a nice heart to heart. But his father is going onto the ship that Rico is leaving to go to officer attendance school. Now, uh, this involves much more intellectual work, a lot more setting of history and tactics in officer candidate school. Um, but eventually he's, he's nearing the end of that and he's made a temporary third lieutenant, uh, which in some ways is honorary, but he really rises to the occasion and does more than would be expected of someone in that position. And in the end, he's involved in a raid on a planet, which is an attempt to recover a bug queen, as is often the case. I think subsequent to this science fiction novel, when humans encounter alien species, there's always a queen, a hive mind. <laughs> yeah, it's usually <laughs> bugs. It's usually a queen system with a hive mind. Think Ender's Game and, and, and uh, you're in the right territory. Yes, Ender's Game and also the first Avengers movie had uh, a very similar. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, there In, in um, the episode one of Star Wars, there's kind of a hive mind on the robots. So they all right. shut down. Yes. Yeah. This is. Uh, from what I read, uh, there may have been some short stories or things that had some similar things, but this one really codified it because it was such a big name in science fiction because, because it was Heinlein because this one won the Hugo award. This is considered the one that like codified that trope in the sci-fi genre of the bug aliens with a hive mind and a queen. So they're involved in this mission to try and attack a planet that the bugs have and recover a queen. Scientists, they've discovered enough about the, um, what do they call the, the, like the basic troops? Scientist class. Yeah. But they, well, they yeah, won't. there's like the warrior cast and the workers and the scientist cast. And, and they've, they've recovered a lot of those, but they need a queen to really be able to make, make their, yeah, allow human scientists to study this other species and understand it enough for the war to go their way. Um, and as they're attempting this, things go badly. The bugs are doing some tactics that don't seem to make sense. Rico realizes this is all distraction. Uh, and he kind of simultaneously, he's he's high enough ranking that he can give orders, but he's also going a little bit rogue <laughs> um, uh, on this mission. Uh, but through his heroism, he's able to help save the day, recover some troops who would have died otherwise, one of whom has captured a queen. And, uh, and so they are able to capture a queen, even though they do suffer um, losses at this point. Rigo officially graduates from officer candidate school. He's made a second lieutenant and he returns to his old plant to platoon where his father is serving as a sergeant and they are preparing for another attack on the bug home world. The end of Starship Troopers. So Andrew, uh, you had not read this before this request. Is that correct? Right. right. I hadn't either. I was familiar with it um, just because you can't be a fan of science fiction and not come across references to this text. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be brought up. Starship Troopers is it, it's a it's definitely got like name recognition in the sci fi game. Yes. What was your uh, what were your expectations going in and how did the text actually match those expectations or or not? So the main exposure that I had leading up to it was clips from the film. You know, in, in some degree, I had had exposure to the film. I'd never like watched the entire thing, but I think I'd probably seen more than 50% of it, certainly um, here and there over the course of years, because it was it was something that I think TV studios got cheap to run on on Friday nights. <laughs> and um, and so I was expecting a lot of that. I was expecting not the like really heady philosophical discourse on the nature of government and 
you know, what public service should mean and why they would require military service for citizenship and, and voting rights and digging into, you know, a political philosophy going back to the ancient Greeks. <laughs> um, so I was not expecting any of that. I think, um, yeah, I would have been expecting a little more like, hey, it's a big honor to serve your military, like that mm-hmm. level of, <laughs> of rhetoric and not the, well, we've set up a system so that you are required to put your life on the line in order to have a voice. It's like, okay, this is a different kind of discussion of these concepts. And I wasn't expecting the, you know, the advanced officer school and all of those things. The The film is more straightforward to say the least. Um, yeah. And my, in, my understanding is, story. my understanding is what the film does to satirize some of the pro-military and potentially fascist elements of the novel is it like really rubs um propaganda in your face and uh Mm -hmm. makes makes the propaganda extremely xenophobic uh right and um and like the the uh pro-military aspects like to the point that it's it's clearly parody and satire um and that's not what this novel is doing (laughs) with that yeah the novel is is i mean and i don't think necessarily that it's for for my take on it, which is not a super deep reading, that is necessarily coming out as fascist and, you know, military power is is the most effective form of government and, and all of those kinds of concepts. Um, but it's definitely digging into why for military power, you know, and it wants to kind of have an internal debate about like, okay, you, you, you have choices. You can, you know, be a businessman or you can join the military. And if you join the military, here are the benefits that he's set up, you know, and, and I called it old school science fiction earlier because it's, you know, this vehicle where he can explore all these really intense topics that you just can't do in any other type of writing, really. You know, he needs to create this world and put it in this future where things are a certain way that he's set up. So that he can have these internal debates and explore these ideas and say, you know, is this is this effective and how do we play with that? And that's really the stuff I wasn't expecting, but the stuff that I found really impressive um, in in listening to it because I listened to it um, through Audible, and I was saying, oh, this is this is really thoughtful. This is really, you know, exploratory with all of these concepts about government and military action and moral moral philosophy, not just like leadership philosophy. Um, and ultimately, like you said, there's situations where it seems like they're just putting this character in this room because he wants to have this conversation and it doesn't really involve the character. Yes, exactly. It's like, but, but because I'm writing from this character's perspective and I kind of want to get into this topic right now, I'm just going to say he's in the room and they require an extra witness. Yeah. Um, similar to you, I expected way more action (laughs) than the book. Uh, and it, it opens heavy on the action. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and so the that opening is like, oh, okay, this is basically what I expected from uh, both the some of the references to Starship Troopers and, and even the name Starship Troopers, right? It gives you mm-hmm. uh, a very military action-oriented feel to it. And then also, like, I remember the trailers and I've seen bits of the movie, even if I have never watched the movie. So that was about what I expected. I was not expecting it to be like you, so heavy on the themes, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But I was surprised how um, accessible and interesting the themes were, right? Like I never felt like it was dull or I was being lectured to. Um, now some of yeah, that- Yeah, and, and the sections that do have kind of those those dense lectures, the school sections, they're 
relatively short and and he cushions them in with other things. You know, they'll he'll tell a little story about soldiers going off base on on one of the planets and you know, getting the first time in in like 18 months of basic training to you know, hang out. And yes. and so you have that and then and then on the other side of that you're going to have ahead of your discussion about well this is why the military does this this way and this is also why uh ordinary citizens uh well uh, not citizens because they're not citizens right but ordinary people yeah. feel uh a, a discomfort towards the military uh both because mm-hmm. there is a literal pecking order that's been established in this world um but there's also uh something that can be off-putting about the way the the starship troopers are carrying themselves when they are trying to reintegrate or or re-engage with a society that they no longer necessarily feel a part of after all those months of hard training. Um, oh, yeah. And so he, he explores things in, um, you know, multiple different facets. So he'll have a lecture where he talks about the military and then there'll be a little vignette where he shows how that's going, you know, how that plays out. Um, not just, you know, somebody lecturing about it. Mm -hmm. And, I, th- I think one thing that's interesting is this was Heinlein considered this his last, what he called a juvenile novel. Uh, so in his writings, he sometimes was writing for an adult audience, sometimes for a younger audience, depending on what magazine he was going to be published in. Uh, obviously magazines are going to have dedicated audiences and the authors are going to be asked to write towards them. This was written for a younger audience um, for adolescents. Um, and I think it's important to note both that audience. That is one reason why I think some of these ideas are presented in a way that seems fairly accessible and does move, even though it's such a dominant part of the novel, it moves along at a pretty good clip uh, and doesn't feel like it's getting bogged down in just discussing ideas for the sake of discussing ideas. He, like you said, he does a good job of interspersing um, some action and some character beats around those themes. Um, even though often the, the, the character and action beats are are um like it's it's not what you'd expect right so it's it's uh yeah. the guys go out to a bar in i think seattle is where it was and uh do they get jumped or do they almost get i can't remember i, I literally can't remember if they actually they, get jumped. i think they almost get jumped so they they went to a bar and they didn't behave themselves the best but it seems like the locals don't love the military there and so yeah. when they leave they're tailed and uh-huh. the guys are a I think they don't manage to hit any of the military guys. They respond too quickly. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and like the action is is kind of like uh, like something almost happened is what you feel like more than something like really action oriented happening right then. So it's it's not. And that's why I say like this is a novel about ideas uh, more so than than you know uh, fighting aliens. Um, and, and so it was written for that juvenile audience and then it's also really important to position this as a text that is being produced in 1959 post-world war ii fairly early into the cold war um and heinlein is feeling like we are being too conciliatory towards communism yeah towards uh the soviet union towards communists uh he is um, both in terms of the themes that he's exploring in this novel and also in some of his own writings and some of his own political speech, he felt like we should be more engaged in a hot war <laughs> than a cold war. Um, and that's one reason why he wrote this novel and explored some of the ideas that he did. It, you know, the, the, the historical con- context is why the novel is what it is. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about, about Johnny? Yeah. Because he is the, I mean, he's the protagonist. He's the main character. He is the the 
vehicle for the entire story. But I, I, I feel like, I mean, when you say it's an idea thing and not a character or a, or a plot or an action story, I mean, what do we know about Johnny? <laughs> you know, what are his, what are his characteristics? He's, he's fairly neutral yeah. for the most part. Yeah. He's, and like, like I would say the most agentive moment uh, is when he decides to enlist. And um, now, and that still seems reactive. Yes. <laughs> it, it's almost on a whim because he liked his moral philosophy professor. He is having a classic adolescent kind of pushback against his parents and not mm-hmm. wanting to slide into the role his parents wanted. And a cute girl from school is enlisting. Those are like the and it and his and his buddy and his buddy does not get brought up a lot after that. I think he may um, die. Says, yeah, I think I'm. Does I think die? he does. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But um, it's not or, like that. Weighs it, it, it's on not really addressed. Rico. Yeah, it, 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 it's not an emotional beat for Rico that his friend who he enlisted with dies to the point where I'm like, ah, yeah. you know, I mean, okay, I uh, I did listen to it a few weeks ago because we almost recorded this episode a couple times. Yeah, and yeah. so it, we we are a few weeks out from our actual. Yeah, things aren't as fresh as fresh as they could be, but it's it's definitely not something that's going to be like a defining moment for for Rico and his his hero's journey, right? Yeah, and I was kind of expecting, oh, they're going to be you know touching base a lot. They're going to connect with each other, and this is going to be somebody that Rico gets to talk to. No, that that is not what happens. Well, and even like the girl that he enlists in some ways because you assume there's a romantic interest. He never really goes in depth. He sees her one more time and they have a kind of coyly flirtatious discussion, right? Yeah. They uh, have like a dinner on a ship later. Yeah. Um, but that's it. Uh, and, and so uh, I, 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 the, the other like most significant character moment is when he does reconnect with his father. Um, even the death of his mother, it's not a huge deal. Uh, in the way that we see it affecting Rico. Um, mm-hmm. Reconnecting with his father is a nice moment. And I think probably the biggest character beat um, uh, of, of the story. Um, but it's, it's, it's bigger for his father than it is for Rico. Like the emotions that we get from his father, Rico doesn't talk about his emotional state or, you know, say that he was crying or things like that. But we hear that about his dad. Yeah, I, I think that's you true. know that his dad is having this really intense emotional response and saying, "Yeah, I enlisted after your mother died, and it's amazing to see you." Yeah, and I, you, I can't remember if it's ex- explicit or implicit, but you're definitely getting the "I'm proud of you, son" vibe. Yeah, from from their um, from their interaction, but like you're saying, it does I think feel like it's a bigger deal for his father to be able to say that to Rico than it is for Rico to hear that from his father. Yeah. Now, but I do feel like um, the father son connection is very powerful at the end of the story in the last little segment of the story where he's there, he's, he's commanding troops. He's, he's a leader um, and getting everyone set and his next in command is his own father. Mm hmm. And that feels like it means something to, to Rico. Yes. Just because of the way he, and it, and and some of it is just because it's the end of the story. And this is how you've learned to read what Rico says about the experience. And he doesn't like, he doesn't respond and refer to his, his father immediately as, as his father throughout the sequence. And then he gets to the end and he says this, you know, kind of like this whole time, my second in command was my dad. Yeah. 
and and somehow that has impact for me. Yeah. Um. And now neither you or I have had military experience. Um. We have a brother who's right. been in the military. Uh. Heinlein was in the Navy during World War II. Um. I believe, and I think yes. I'm just double checking now. Uh, as it says, I'm just going to read uh, a section from his Wikipedia page. Heinlein's experience in the U.S. Navy exerted a strong influence on his character and writing. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis with the class of 1929. Shortly after graduation, he was commissioned as an ensign. Um, skipping along. He advanced to lieutenant junior grade while serving aboard the USS Lexington in 1931. Um, jumping ahead a little. Um, the captain of that fleet served as chief of naval operations and commander in chief of the U.S. fleet during World War II. And um, Heinlein was frequently interviewed during his later years by military historians, asking him about that captain, uh, Captain King. Um, Heinlein served as a gunnery officer on the USS Roper in '33 and '34. Um, so I guess not quite into. Um, World War Two there, but but you know he's he's a military man, right? So it's yeah, that's that's a full military experience. Yes, exactly. Not <laughs> and, and and also like moving through the ranks the way that we see Rico mm-hmm. and um, I I think it's interesting for this text to see the main character be basically a the right kind of military man, whereas so often when we get uh, stories with uh, military heroes, it you know they go off on their own and do their own thing. They're the the square peg in the round hole, but the the military needs that you know wh- whatever whatever it is that they, you know that makes them kind of the maverick uh, within the military. Yeah, and they have to they have to to save the day because of their disregard for rules or they're bucking the system or or whatever it is. Yeah, and Rico is not that. <laughs> like I said, in the last yeah, mission... He's pretty in line. By default, he kind of has to go rogue a little bit, but he's high but, enough but up But not that, really. Yeah, and not really, and he's high enough up that he kind of can do it at that point with the information that he has uh, and that he's gathering through his own recon. Yeah, and, and, and at that point, he doesn't have the ability to get a higher order. Yeah. Um... Because I think that his commanding officer is underground and unable to, and that's to who, communicate. That's who he goes and rescues. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and and I believe that officer had been going rogue to take that mission underground. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and it's, so it's kind of a, a weird chain. And it's like, okay, he's making appropriate decisions in this situation, actually. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting because so much of our – American pop culture consumption is about those kind of characters who are a little bit rogue and a little bit individual. And that's not the theme of this, this novel. This theme of this novel is about self-sacrifice for the greater good, almost exclusively through military service, right? That, that this is the highest form of morality is sacrificing yourself, not for uh, your family or your loved ones, but for everyone for for culture and civilization right yeah and they talk about that in the in some of the philosophy discussions that the reason they chose to do that is so that everyone who casts a vote knows what it's like to sacrifice their life or put their life as close to sacrifice as possible Mm -hmm. for the country that they are you know contributing that vote towards yes um and, and so it it would be counter to those themes to have Rico be 
that kind of classic American, uh, you know, outsider hero protagonist. Um, and, but it does kind of make him feel like a bit of a flat character who is there yeah. following orders, doing exactly what's expected of him, working hard to do that. Uh, and so you can respect him for everything you're seeing, but he, he doesn't feel like the most attentive protagonist that we've had he's, in a story. He's fairly dispassionate mm-hmm. um, all throughout, you know, it's I'm, I, and even when he seems to commit to something, it seems so heavily influenced by something that's happening immediately before and not like he's thought about it and, and, you know, motivated himself to it. You know, he's about to drop out of, um, out of basic training. And then he gets a letter and he says, okay, I'm going to stick with it because my, my history teacher sent me a letter (laughs) and it was right when I was in the dark spot and I was about to drop out, but now I'm not going to. And then he's not even sure he wants to go to officer school And then some people say stuff and then he says, all right, I'm going to go to officer school. And it's like, okay, but like he doesn't really have any goals or internal motivations. It seems like something influences him in the moment when he was kind of vacillating and he's like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I I, I guess I'm going to keep moving forward at, at something. And then something tips him into a specific direction and he seems to suddenly go all in on that. Yeah, and when he is all in, like you, you sense that commitment, and he is—he um, really is good at being committed. Yes. once he commits yes, to those. exactly that, like that is that is definitely like an admirable quality in his character, mm-hmm. as he says, "Okay, officer school, I'm going to do my best. I'm committed to it. I'm not going to try to drop out or anything like that." And he really does. Yeah, and um, to the point where. Uh, like he is so committed to his studies for officer school that it is inhibiting his ability to be that acting third lieutenant role, like where he needs to be more engaged with uh, the, the ship and the troops around him. And his uh, immediate commanding officer has to say, okay, save your studies. Basically, if you live through this, <laughs> that's when you're going to study. Yeah, it's like, on the way if back. you live, you can go back to reading the books. Yeah, like, like he, he is. Otherwise, there's no point. He is so committed that he is trying to do everything on the ship. He is trying to uh, be uh, in the role uh, as the commanding officer over this particular group. He is trying. He's taking over a role as an engineer because he understands the suits enough that he can do some work. Yeah, so he has to do some some equipment maintenance. Yeah, that, that, that um, I think he's doing crew. some cleaning responsibilities. Yeah. And he is still also doing all the reading for officer school to the point where like he's not getting enough sleep. He's becoming a little bit shoddy on everything because he's trying he's trying to do it all. So he's everything is is suffering a bit because of his physical and emotional <laughs> limitations in doing that. And his commanding officer has to say, set the readings aside until we come on the way back from the mission is when you'll you you can do that. Um but he's so committed that like he, setting it aside was nof- would never have occurred to him. <laughs> yeah he yeah he, i mean he's not i mean usually in in stories you're gonna follow one character and they're going to be the most or the best something you know they are the guy for this they are the smart one they are the brave one they are the savvy one in some way and rico's none of that yes <laughs> but he's doing a good job and he's there and he seems to get it but not better than anybody else and not notably worse than anybody else. Really? He, he just has it together, but you know, he's not like the, star he's just a guy who's doing the stuff chosen one. Yeah. All. Yeah. He, he is not the toughest. He is not the best fighter. He is not the smartest. He doesn't make the best decisions in the battlefield. He just makes 
suitable decisions in the battlefield. Well, and and he has done the studies and is informed enough. He makes basically the right decision. Like what what would be uh, the tactical decision that basically like a computer would say, this is what you should be doing right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Because and, he's done all that He work. makes the decision that that they would want nine out of 10 candidates in officer school to make correctly. Mm-hmm. It's like he made it into the place. He's making the decision he should be making. If he was making a different decision, like they wouldn't have taken him. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's interesting to read that character when we're so used to reading only this character can do this to save the world. Well, and, and it's like, well, no, like really nine out of 10 guys in this military outfit can do this. And I think it's uh, interesting also like positioning it with this text being 1959 and with Heinlein feeling like the U.S. needs to be doing more, particularly to combat communism. And many people identify uh, the uh, communal system of the bugs as being uh, the, the communist representation of yeah, a representation of communism. Uh, I often you would see like hyper individualism be the theme that gets presented as the antidote to communism. And that is not <laughs> the, what is presented as the antidote. Uh, the, the antidote is self-sacrifice for the greater good and knowing your role and fulfilling that role. <laughs> yeah. Um, with the, like, it's not a classic American novel. <laughs> no, uh, but but it, it, again, it does very much feel like a mid to late 1950s <laughs> novel that yeah. is engaging with American uh, both military and political rhetoric of that time. Uh, I want to read one quote uh, from the Wikipedia page that I think engages with some of these ideas in an interesting way. It says, critics have debated to what extent the novel promotes Heinlein's own political views. Some contend that the novel maintains a sense of irony that only allows readers to draw their own conclusions. Others argue that Heinlein is sermonizing throughout the book and that the purpose is to expound his militaristic philosophy. Do you feel some of that irony or any criticism of the system that is in place? Or do you feel like this is all just saying, hey, guys, military service is the highest calling that a human can have. And those who engage in that are really the best versions of humanity. Therefore, they should be the ones uh, like with this novel. It is like explicitly they're the ones that can have full citizenship and full right to vote and determine the, you know, the future path of humanity Mm -hmm. i feel like he is really committed to exploring this what if science fiction scenario you know if the world was like this and we are engaged in military like this what would what would things look like and how would people describe that but i mean the military is not demonstrated to be perfect there's quite a lot of it that is demonstrated to be extremely flawed and and barely functioning in some cases um and and in fact non-functioning in some cases um and there's things that are definitely criticized about how they do it is like that's that's kind of an immoral way to handle this but i guess it works so maybe it's it's valid but the limitation there is there's nothing shown in comparison as a higher or better version of anything because it's 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 solely directed at viewing the military. You know, you don't have an opportunity to see, okay, are there political figures who do something good? It's all about the military. And so you don't see an alternative. And so I can see where they would 
read it as, you know, military is the ultimate good, but I don't know if it's thoroughly justified to to read it that limited. I, I feel like there might be something here. He's just not demonstrating it, but I don't think he's demonstrating military is the ultimate good. Look at this book and see that this is the ultimate good. It's, hey, here's a version of the future and here's how the military functions. And it's pretty good. You know, it's, if not the, then it's, it's one of the best things that, you know, the, the characters um, in this story can do. But I think there's enough criticism to say it's never going to be perfect. So I don't think he would necessarily be saying military, military, military. It's the only way. Yeah. Um, There are definitely moments where like listening to it, I like immediately want to push back. (laughs) Um, So uh, mm-hmm. Like there's some parts of the like the the phil- philosophy discussions that they're having where the instructor kind of says, uh, you know, like people want to claim that might doesn't make right, but how often does it? <laughs> like basically, like how often in human history yeah. do we see might makes right? <laughs> like this is going to decide what is the right thing to be doing right now, and the 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 stronger military is essentially the moral force. Uh, and I immediately want to push back against that, <laughs> you know, and also like the idea of not that the average citizen is disenfranchised, but like they are never enfranchised, never franchised. What is the term for that? <laughs> like disenfranchisement. I know the term. I think enfranchised. Yeah, they're never enfranchised. Like you have to work to become enfranchised. Um, just, I immediately want to push against that, that concept as well. And I think there is, well, and I think it it invites you to Mm -hmm. push back against it. I don't think it ever says, you know, these philosophy, philosophical discussions are correct. I think it, it invites you as a reader to challenge it and make a decision. Yes, Uh, absolutely. Uh, One area where like, particularly I see um, like, because Rico, our narrator, is repulsed by it, we're supposed to be repulsed by it. It's when the military is still using flogging as its form of punishment, uh, and you know this is set in in a future, uh, and this is like the best system that we have. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of an unspecified a few hundred years in the future, but not too many. Yeah, uh, and the fact that uh, you know th- this this flogging is still the go to punishment for uh, insubordination. Now, obviously. I expect there to be punishment for insubordination, but a public flogging felt very, um, oh, what's the word? Uh, barbaric, right? As, yeah, I was going to say archaic. Yeah, archaic or barbaric. But, um, in, a, in a way, uh, but also, like, it doesn't feel necessarily out of place <laughs> um, to see that. It, it reminded me a bit of um, another novel that we've talked about, um, Name of the Wind, where uh you know our protagonist who is very much that classic protagonist right you know the 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 almost chosen one who has gifts beyond the average person who yeah he is he is more reckless but more successful he can do all these things he is he is smarter and better at everything but but the one thing he needs is he needs to be at this university and the 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 price for some of his rebellious acts at the university is that he gets publicly whipped and it just is like you know that's just what happens there and this is set in this kind of vaguely pre-industrial fantasy world right (laughs) you know uh Mm -hmm. and so the idea of a whipping doesn't seem out of place there but then when he's telling when someone else who's outside of the university system sees his scars and they say what happened he says oh i got whipped they're like that's so barbaric (laughs) like you need sometimes you need an outsider to say that's so barbaric why why is this the system that is in place and so the idea that in this future and especially in in name of the wind because they're talking about like the enlightened university Mm -hmm. 
well, engaging in that. And that's kind of my reaction in this. It's like, okay, this is the future. Uh, we're set in the future. Are the ideas that you know humanity has evolved to the point where we have a unified global government? Military is the highest form of service that's possible. This is supposed to be, uh, you know, at least the people in charge. Not necessarily like every grunt that enlists, but the people in charge are supposed to be the best of the best, and uh, you know the most uh, informed, the most educated, uh, and uh, you know they they are living the highest moral life according to. Uh, the theories or or uh, the themes that have been presented in this novel, and yet we have this kind of barbaric uh, uh, system of punishment. And also, uh, I, I think I, I skipped it in the in the summary, but there's another instance where okay, you understand why this person needs to die. Like the, the, there's another character who was enlisted, he ran off from the base, and while still technically being enlisted because he you know he hadn't been removed from the rules or anything, he kills a child. Um, and okay the you understand um why in this version of reality capital punishment would be the punishment for that uh but they do a public hanging for the capital punishment which again feels barbaric um and and antiquated and archaic uh and i think some of those choices by heinlein are deliberate to make you say can i buy into everything that's being presented in this you uh, rico is pushing back against uh, you know, like he, the, his most emotional reactions aren't on the battlefield per se. It, it's uh, this repulsion to the public flogging and to the public hanging. And as readers, then we also feel that. And I think that's where you can argue that Heinlein is saying, don't, don't just accept everything I'm presenting to you here. Uh, you know, yeah. the, engage with these ideas. I'm presenting a lot of ideas, a, a ton of ideas in this uh, ostensibly, uh, you know, you know action oriented sci-fi novel. Cause it's called Starship Troopers. And it begins with this, you know, hyper uh, militaristic action scene, but then it's just gonna be idea after idea after idea is what's presented but I think there's enough there that says, don't just take this all in and say, this is how things should be. This is the right, what right idea, but do engage with these ideas and think about them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. What he wants a reader to say at the end of this is not, oh, we should have a system where the only way to get a vote is to serve in the military, you know, to X degree and then be granted citizenship. I think he's saying, hey, guys. Just in case you're not thinking about stuff, here's a book with a narrative and some action and some some space fighting and aliens and stuff. But make sure you're thinking about like stuff. Make sure you're thinking about government and military action and why we have to do the things we do and what moral philosophy means. Make sure that you are thinking. And if I can do that by saying, here's some ideas, you should not like them. Mm-hmm form your own ideas. <laughs> you know, I don't think he wants someone to walk out and say that's starship troopers. That's the way it should be. I think he wants someone to say that starship troopers made me think about the way things should be. And now yeah. I'm going to keep thinking <laughs> about them. Yes, exactly. And, and I don't think it's everything that was in there. <laughs> I don't think um, that the, the way things should be are exactly what was presented in there, but I don't think where, what I see right now is what the way things should be either. And so let's yeah, look. it's like I do want to think yeah. and develop a a personal philosophy or something. You know, I think he's trying to get people to think about it. Yeah, and and he did. Like I was thinking about things that I don't know the last time I thought about those things, mm-hmm. but he presented it in a way. I was like, yeah, let me let me let me grapple with that. Let me think and let me deal with the challenge he has laid down in this narrative 
about, you know, capital punishment in the military and a public hanging. Let me grapple with this concept about fighting the bugs and proportionate responses and capturing the queen. And what's the, what's the cost in, in the military expenditure of life to achieve this goal. And let me think about these things and thinking about those things is going to make me better at being a person. And I mean, I mean, so, so Heinlein was born in 1907. So I don't think it's, you know, accidental that one of the ideas that we, you and I as readers kind of chafe against is this, like the issue of voting and like, how do you gain the right to vote? He was born in 1907. He saw the issue yeah. of the right to vote. The, the change in, in suffrage. Yes, exactly. Um, and he was still seeing at the time of this writing, like Jim Crow laws uh, that were severely curtailing uh, rights to vote. Like, like the issue of the right to vote and who can is something that Obviously, in America, we've been working out since the founding of our country uh, to the present day. Uh, Like in the present day, like you still see occasionally like people saying, well, what about the age that we're allowed to vote? Like we are restricting Mm -hmm. the right to vote to a certain age at this point. And some argue it should be lowered. Um, So like this, even in 2019, when we're recording this, you see some issues around the right to vote being um, explored. And even right now, like voter voter rolls, who's allowed to be on the voter rolls um, and what is something that disqualifies for someone from being on the voting rolls is some is something that's changing uh in the last year in mm-hmm. some states <laughs> um and, and but as much as we're seeing it now i think he saw it more <laughs> as someone who was born yeah. in 1907 and uh you know during formative moments in his life was seeing this very public debate about who has the right to vote how inherent to human life or to american citizenry is the right to vote and um i I, th- I think that's one reason that is something that like sticks out so much in the novel is because he wanted it to <laughs> and because of, of what is yeah, experience. And it was, it was a different kind of topic for him than it is for a modern art audience in, in 2019. But it still sticks out to us as a 2019 audience. Um, and, and I think uh, that is one area where you can point to this and say, I don't think he's saying this is exactly how everything should be. I think he wants us to think about how things should be. And he's presenting, like you said, this kind of, uh, this sci-fi fable of a world that is operating in a certain way. And we, we read it and we say, okay, well, what about this? Do I agree with him? What, what do I not? Yeah. I, I, I think his intention, like most classic sci-fi is to get you thinking, not to present a utopia. Yeah. Um, and again, I have to praise his writing because so much of it is just kind of exploring some of these ideas. I was interested the entire way through. <laughs> Um, which, yes, absolutely. I, I really did enjoy this. Mm-hmm. And I think there are texts that say, I want to explore big ideas that become impenetrable, uh, that become uh, just just dull, <laughs> like just dull to, to engage with. And I did not have that experience, even as I don't agree with every idea that's presented in there, but I don't think I'm supposed to either. Uh, but uh, it does definitely present an awful lot of ideas to the reader in a way that maintained my interest. And I never wanted to stop. I was always like, okay, well, well, what's coming next? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, maybe the level uh, just to, to reiterate maybe one more time before we wrap up on the, how is he challenging people to, to think about their stuff? And I think the form of that challenge in a lot of cases is I'm presenting something and I am going to state in this book from these moral philosophy professors that this is the absolute right choice. You should not agree with it. Now defend yourself. Mm-hmm. 
you know, defend your your take on it because I think you probably have a good one and you just need to think it through. Make sure that you can defend whatever your take is. And I think and and I think that's that's the challenge he's laying down. It's like, look, I don't actually think this is right, but I'm putting it here as an absolute so that you challenge it and you defend your stance. And one thing that I think is interesting in that is as you noted like he goes through a lot of history of different forms of government different eras of what it meant to be a citizen. Like he addresses a mm-hmm. lot of that. They talk about Napoleon. Yeah. And in doing that, I can't remember how explicit it is, but I remember at least having the idea implicitly uh, available to me or expressed to me that every, in every one of these eras, this was accepted as the, the best form of government, the best form of, uh, of, of humanity, moral decision-making. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, military action all of and, those and they're saying well now we know this is an implicit it's like we got implicit it right. in that is well in a century we're going to look back and say oh what were they doing it right then <laughs> they, they yeah. got some things right and we're going to build on the foundation of what they got right but they were not there <laughs> yeah i think there's definitely a point where the the moral philosophy professor says now if from our enlightened perspective we know we actually got it right Based on all of their mistakes, we nailed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I, you're supposed to say, it's like, well, that can't be true. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everyone thought that. And, and I think obviously Heinlein is saying, hey, 1959 America, we don't have it right right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts on uh, Starship Troopers and, and Juan Rico? I, I really, I thought it was good. I think it, it, you know, challenged ideas and said, you know, defend whatever your stance is going to be in a way that people talk about, like how college is supposed to present challenging ideas. I thought he did that well in, you know, an eight hour novel. Yeah. And I, I think it would be accessible for any audience, right? Like, like he was writing for, uh, like he said, a juvenile audience. So it's more of an adolescent. Audience. Yeah, I think, I think a 14, 15, 16 year old can, can get into this and say, Okay, now I'm thinking. But I also like I I thoroughly enjoyed it, <laughs> and and obviously we've engaged with mm-hmm. an awful lot of texts on this, on this uh, on this podcast, and uh, you know, fourteen fifteen years old is is a ways in my rearview mirror of life. <laughs> it, it, it's a step back on my timeline, uh, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, so I, I recommend it, and um, I, we haven't engaged with as much hard sci fi as I think I thought we were going to when we started this podcast. Yeah, and I'm actually surprised we didn't talk more about the hard sci-fi and the descriptions that he went into of like the, the scientific mechanical elements of the suits and, and the ships and all of that. I, I, I actually forgot about it. I thought we would have talked about it more. Yeah. Um, just as a genre, I would have expected us to do more hard sci-fi because that's something I really got into in my adolescence. I don't know how I missed Heinlein and, and Starship Troopers, but I read a lot of Asimov um, back in the day. And I think it's in, an important genre to acknowledge and to explore as uh both both in terms of the development of american popular culture uh but also just uh as a genre itself it's worth engaging with and i think this is a really mm-hmm. good text um if if it's something where you're like ah oh, you know i i i've been either uh wanting some good hard sci-fi or i feel like i need to engage with some good hard sci-fi because it's not something i've done as much i think starship troopers is a good text for that yes 
All right. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode. And again, thank you to Patron Grant for suggesting this. I think it was a great pick. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 25, when we talked about Ender's Game, a novel that we referenced in this episode, or episode number 188, when we talked about Name of the Wind, another novel that we referenced in this episode. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss, or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Jadorowski, or producer Andrews at Disminute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We enjoy conversations there with our listeners, and would love for you to, to make a comment on a post anytime. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss, or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out... Oh, dear. This is the moment of truth. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. It just hit me as I was oh, starting no. the sentence. I was literally reading the sentence like, oh, dude. Boy.